All right, open up your Bible, if you would, uh, to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to continue where we've been going through the book of Acts uh, for some time, Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse number 1, and if you're, uh, we, we've been following this journey with the apostles who are completely convinced that Jesus Christ is alive because they saw that uh, with their own eyes, they experienced Jesus' resurrection life, and so they have been uh, put into action and in sharing this good news of Christ with others. And as we uh, look at this narrative today, what we're going to find is a crisis that turns into an opportunity. Let me go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read Scripture in Acts chapter 6. Father, thank you for the life that we know because Jesus is living. He lives in us, God. And we pray that you'll help us as we look at your word and we look at these foundational ideas of how you were working among your people to form a name for yourself and to, and to help the church to be able to continue and uh, to thrive in generation after generation. And we pray that you'll use the inspired word of God in our life. And God, truly, that you would help us to open up our eyes and to see the wonder. There's wonder in who you are and how you've revealed yourself in this life. And so, God, give us the spiritual eyes to see that and help us, God, today to experience the hope for which we've been created in Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. I encourage you to uh, open your Bible or follow along if you have a Bible app or something like that so you can engage with the text of Scripture. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Steve, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, and the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So far in Acts, what we've uh, seen is a series of crises, and they take different forms. And uh, some of the crises that we've seen earlier are on the basis of hostility that arises from the religious establishment toward the new church. So they, uh, we see that like in the passage last week, the apostles are arrested and they're taken into custody and they're threatened and released and even beaten uh, because of their commitment to Christ. And so for them it represented a crisis, an intersection where they had to make a decision. Am I going to continue to be faithful to Jesus or am I going to turn away from Christ? And they decide, of course, because as we said, they have seen Jesus alive. We're going to continue to follow Jesus. We're going to continue to proclaim the Messiah, Jesus, and so for them it was a crisis, but it also ended up that it encouraged them in their faithfulness. And some of the challenges that the church has 
facing as we keep going through Acts are just unprecedented situations. When we get to Acts chapter 15, we'll see that the gospel, you get a hint of it in this passage, the gospel is going out of Jerusalem, traveling north along the Mediterranean to a city called Antioch. And Antioch becomes the mission-sending center of the church and its movement in those days. If you're familiar with geography and you look at the Middle East, and probably a lot of people are now because it's so often in the news, what you find is that Israel is nestled along the Mediterranean coastline. They call it the Fertile Crescent, and it's about the size of Texas. If you stretch Texas along the coastline of the Mediterranean, the geographical area is essentially the same. But it also laid along a trade route that connected it to Asia Minor, which is Turkey, to Africa and Egypt. And and then as the gospel began to spread because of the Mediterranean, its accessibility, they were able to go into Europe with the gospel, into Rome. And so strategic things are happening in this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. And it's paving the way for God's work to expand to the nations, which was always his intent. God's intent was always that Jesus Christ, it would be the only way to him and that the good news about Jesus would spread throughout the entire world. So sometimes the crises that they come up against are about precedent. This hasn't happened before. What do we do about it? And then there are crises like this one that we're going to take a close look at today which has a lot of facets. One, it's an organizational problem. It represents a problem about distribution, a ministry that was being carried out that was causing problems because of its unevenness. It was uneven, the way that it was carried out. And we'll uh, get into the details of that. But it had other facets. It had the facet of bias, that some people were being omitted from care because of their ethnicity their ethnic background. That's what's happening here. And then because it's a human story, of course, it has the uh, potential there for uh, relational complexity. It is a complicated problem that they encountered. It was the kind of problem that could easily have uh, become increasingly worse and disruptive. But but even though it's disruptive, as we'll see in this passage, what really happens is it becomes for the church an opportunity to grow in a brand new way. So it's a healthy thing. And I think when we think about the way life is sometimes, if our attitudes are the way they need to be, what we'll find is that crisis sometimes becomes an opportunity. And and for us, it always feels like a disruption. And, of course, I want to be clear that this is this book was written to groups of Christians. You know, sometimes when we think about the Bible, we think about ourselves and we apply it personally. And there are personal applications, but really what we're seeing in this passage is God speaking to and acting among a group of people, a church with an identity. And so that's where when I think about how to make an application, I think about us as a a family, as a group of humans that God has called out of this surrounding community to minister here in his name and how how it looks for us to work that out as we live among each other, connected to each other in relationship. So for them, 
It's disruptive. It's personal. It contains aspects of prejudice. And, you know, we're going to see that. But they, they were able to take this crisis and view it through the lens of opportunity, and it became for them. They were already at this historical moment where the church was growing like crazy, and they were able to process a problem, and at the end what you see is that the church continued to grow like crazy. It continued to have health and vitality. And, of course, that's what God is after among us, is to knit people's heart together in such a way that we flourish and we obey and we experience him with each other, the called out people. We've talked about what church means. When the Bible uses the word, it has to do with the idea of gathering, connecting, assembly. That's what it meant for them. There's no understanding of church that doesn't involve us being connected to other people who are following Jesus. That's what church is. It's our identity, our mission to make Jesus known in the world through our worship and the preaching of the word and prayer and all these simple means that God gives us. So how did they do it? How did they approach this crisis? Well, what we can see and what we we need among ourselves because we want to learn with them is that they listened and were sensitive to the problem that was happening. They listened. They, they heard murmuring. It's hard not to hear murmuring, isn't it? When we hear murmuring, we better pay attention to it. It's the expression, sometimes in the wrong way among humans, of some disappointment or problem, but we're wise to, to dial ourselves into that and pay attention to it. So this, what's happening with this congregation in Jerusalem, a very large number of people getting larger all the time, is that they were doing what we would call benevolent ministry. When Scott talked about the um, Promise 686 benevolent ministry, this church every fifth Sunday we emphasize an offering for benevolence that goes to a uh, fund that's distributed to care for needs in Effingham County. And even though this is one of the most prosperous counties in the state of Georgia, there are pockets of poverty. There are people that wake up and don't know how to pay their bills. There are people that through uh, no problem or something, maybe it was something that was an issue in their own life, they have a need. And part of our heart is to care for that and to help. And so there are lots of ways that that looks in churches. In their church, they were feeding widows. That's the daily distribution. The idea is when the disciples say, we don't want to leave the preaching of the word of God in prayer and attend to this benevolent cause, someone was doing that. Some group of people were taking food to widows. That's the idea, distributing it. And the problem was that in the first century, you had two groups of Jews in Jerusalem, the Greek-speaking Jews. They're all Jewish people. But some of them speak Greek and some speak Aramaic. So it's linguistic. Think about that. Uh, I play tennis. I enjoy playing tennis and have since I was about eight years old or so. My uh, family went to the, do you remember S&H Green Stamps? Any of you old people like me? Used to go to the grocery store. And when you checked out, they gave you Green Stamps as a part of your purchase. However much your money, it was based on that. And you went home and stuck them in a book licked them, stuck them in a book until the book was full. Then you took the book to this store. 
I don't remember going to the store, but I remember we got tennis rackets with S&H green stamps and tennis balls when I was a kid. That's how old I am. And I love tennis immediately. Today I can smell a tennis ball, and it's like it just takes me back to being a kid. And I still play uh, league tennis. And So me and a friend recently were playing over at the tennis courts that are behind the Y, and there was a man out there by himself with a bunch of tennis balls, and he you could tell he was a good player. And my friend and I were just playing a set, just hitting for fellowship. He's my friend, and we enjoy playing tennis together. And I was like, we should go talk to this dude and see if he wants to hit with us for a little while because it was informal. And we go over there, and he is uh, from Seoul, South Korea. And he has a son who lives here and is working, and he spoke about this much English, okay? But because we had something in common, we were able to, you know, invite him in, and we played a game called Cutthroat together. With this guy I had met 10 minutes earlier, if that. And Cutthroat is like, you play the singles court, we play the doubles court, and you rotate around that way. But anyway, we made it work with this guy that spoke this much English, he knew enough. He knew tennis. That was enough. You know, we found common ground. And I was able, his son came later because he had dropped him off because he wasn't driving. And I gave him my contact information. He texted me before he left to go back to uh, South Korea. Anyway, it was neat, a neat story. But the thing that you notice is that linguistic issues can divide people, can keep us from understanding one another, can cause chaos sometimes. And this is a component in the problem that they are encountering, is that they have a difference. It's not only linguistic, it's also cultural that they're experiencing. Hellenism, if you're not familiar with history, was the idea of the spread of Greek culture and language, and it was prominent in the first century. So Greek was the, the uh, trade language. If you wanted to do business, and everybody did, you had to learn how to speak Greek, and so lots of people had learned to speak Greek, but some had not. And so it's like, in reverse, like we've been to Toronto a few times to visit some family members that live there, and you'll find whole communities of Greek-speaking people who haven't um, kind of synced up with the larger culture there. And But here, the opposite was happening. You had Greek speakers who were, they call it being bicultural because of the way that the Mediterranean world worked. And probably what had happened is that these folks were also immigrants. They'd immigrated to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was a city that lent itself to that kind of immigration. Some of it was religious. People would come there to worship God. And that these Jews, who they, they were spread all over the Roman world for different reasons, Sometimes they would immigrate back. And think about that. If you're an immigrant, what's your situation? If you immigrate to another community, we're having this in Effingham right now with people who are coming here from South Korea. Many of them have language issues. I've heard stories about how people are trying to um, culturally fit in here and they have some uh, issues that are a challenge to them. It's a great opportunity for Christians, by the way to be like Jesus to people. And, and so immigration was bringing these people to Jerusalem, but they didn't have big family networks. 
That's how it works. You move away from your family. Your family's somewhere else. You have defined connections. And they didn't have those. And so consequently, when the widows were fed, they got left out. Even though they were following Jesus too, there were some elements of things that were happening. Some of it was probably prejudice. And we think, Christians don't struggle with prejudice, right? I mean, Christians struggle with all kinds of things, including prejudice. It's, it, we have to tap into the best God parts of ourself to find empathy and understanding with other people. Because everybody struggles with all kinds of things. And in their way, in their uh, first century world, these folks were being omitted from care and we, one thing I would say uh, every time I have the opportunity is that racism is antithetical to Christian thought in every way. In every way. Because fundamentally Christians believe God created two sets of humans and then peopled the world through them. Right? Adam and Eve. That's our story. It's what we believe. The narrative that we get in the Bible is God started with two people and he populated the entire planet from those folks. So all of us are kin. That's the way the Bible puts it. From one blood, Acts 17. He he put all of the people that are on the earth on earth. And so there's nothing more dumb than prejudice, but people struggle with it. And it was a component in their problem. And it occurred, as we say, when the disciples, the number of them were numbering, multiplying, yet they didn't overlook it. They didn't say, the mission is primary. That's what people, how leadership sometimes looks at problems. We go like, the mission is more important than anything. We're not going to be distracted away from that. What's the weakness of that? Well, of course that people aren't a problem. People are people. People have problems, all of us. But they didn't look at this as some bothersome thing. They said there are human beings involved here who need to be cared for, who aren't being cared for. So human problems aren't just staticky noise. That's good to think through. Like we we hear about other people's problems, and is it right for us from a Christian conscience to go, well, that's you. I'm sorry that that's your problem. No, we wait in. Being a human is messy. We have problems, we wade in, and we're mindful. And life in community can be messy, and it was for them. And they interrupted themselves to be helpful. They didn't just say, hey, we're not going to worry about that. They attended to it, and they addressed it. And the disciples, when we think about what they said, it sounds a little off-putting, you know, when I read it. And they say, it's not desirable for us to leave off the teaching, teaching and preaching and uh, to serve tables. When I read that, it's like, it sounds like, are, are they saying this is a menial kind of thing that's beneath them? That's not what they're saying. They had been given by Jesus a unique task. There were only a few of them among, among hundreds and hundreds and growing to be thousands of uh, Christians in their community. And really one thing I think that's unique about Acts is that in some ways we begin to see the uh, formation of organization in churches. You know, what is the church going to look like for 
the next uh, decades and then hundreds and then thousands of years. That's what we see, is that God is showing us a pattern here in, in Scripture. But uh, they had limitations, and that limitation required delegation. So anytime anybody's ever put in a position to lead others, you realize that if you try to do everything yourself, it, you'll be ineffective. That's just how it is. If a church is ever going to meet its potential in reaching people, there has to be an investment in people to raise up other people and share responsibility and delegate. And you can only delegate if there are people there to delegate to. But here's what the Bible says that's helpful, I think, for us to remember. This is a kind of a lengthy passage in Romans 12, but it says, For the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See what it says there? That God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of uh, one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching the one who exhorts in his exhortation the one who contributes in generosity the one who leads with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness so what we you see there is that the bible is saying God assigns responsibilities to people. God gives each person gifts. The body of Christ works like a body. There are many members in it, and not everybody's made identical. It took a while for me to figure out what God had uh, called me and enabled me to do. But the truth is God calls and enables all of us to serve and to honor him and to give out of our lives, each of us. And that's what the scripture says. We keep in mind that anybody that serves Christ should do it with humility. But all of us are called to do something, and we need to recognize God decides the order, and God puts it together in in, uh, that way. So what we see with these uh, the disciples is they had limitations they acknowledged that and then that they all realized their identity was servants that they were servants of Christ and really one of the chief ideas in here is that that every person is called to serve so the other idea that you see here in this passage that the, the apostles turned a crisis into an opportunity was that they said there, we have to find some people to address this need. And it's in, interesting how they did that. The seven men that they selected have had character qualities, and we're going to talk about some of those. I know some of you like to take notes a lot. Here's a bunch of stuff that you can uh, note from this passage. The, the character qualities of leaders that you see in, in the Scripture. And that's interesting to me that they don't start with talent, right? They say the leaders that God uses have to be certain kinds of humans. They have to have character qualities. Things have to be true about them and their consistency for, for God to use them effectively. And that's what they majored on in this passage. And so you see that. They're spiritually qualified servants. And what that meant was part of it, like it says, they could take a mess and make it better. They were able to administer that, that this group of people, but they were reputable, reputable men, 
widely affirmed as ethically consistent. That's what it means to be reputable. Like you go ask everybody and they, they all say, yes, this person is honest. This person functions with integrity. You know, so perfect, no. Blameless, blameless is a Bible idea. A person can be blameless and not be perfect. They can have a, a reputation that's honorable. They are ethically consistent. They were full of the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that they were? Because they exhibited the fruit of the Spirit in practice in their behavior. The fruit of the Spirit is all gentleness, kindness, goodness, uh, self-control. There's a list in Galatians that shows us what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. So how do I know a person is Spirit-filled? Because they consistently show it out of their life and behavior. They were filled with the Spirit, given evidence of it. They were wise people. In other words, they could bring tact and godliness into difficult situations. Tact is helpful, right? They, a, ta- a, a tactful person is the kind of person that you can bring into a problem and they don't make it worse because of their presence. They make it better because they have a calmness. I've heard people uh, describe it as a less anxious presence. A less anxious presence. So they, they uh, were wise, applied truth to situations. They were counted on not to be foolish people a contingent of spiritually qualified servants. They were people who uh, can apply wisdom, as we say. They avoid the charge of hypocrisy through well-lived lives. That's good. Nobody could say this guy's a hypocrite because his life gave testament. They might say it, but his life said something else. And they would get their hands dirty, which is always a good quality for... When the Bible talks about leaders... It's uh, still, it's just another word for servants. And anybody who serves in a church knows that you're going to get your hands dirty with stuff. Like, I can't tell you how many tables I've moved in my lifetime or uh, chairs we've set up in our lifetime or whatever it takes. That's really what you do. But uh, uh, in in the Bible's idea about leadership, it's people who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty. And uh, another idea, I think, and when we think about biblical leadership is that I think when they looked at these people, they were already servants. That's how they knew they were the right people for this situation, is that they were not looking for uh, potential as much as they were looking for practitioners. That when we think about, like, the idea we're going to get to is this is probably talking about deacons, how the church started to call deacons. And the way they decided was these men are already deaconing. I don't even know if that's a word, deaconing. But that's what they were doing. They were deaconing. They were acting like servants. And so they said, let's go grab these guys and formalize it. Let's make them deacons. Let's make Because the word for deacon in the Bible is just the word servant. That's what it is. And so they were looking for practitioners. These people are already doing this. And also we see the disciples say, no matter what happens, no matter what crisis comes, we will set importance on Scripture and prayer. They said, this is something that we cannot neglect, Scripture and prayer. And so historic patterns are emerging for the church. Church leaders must be attentive to Scripture and prayer. Everybody ought to be attentive to Scripture and prayer. 
whether you have a formal leadership position or not, but no one more than the church's leaders. They should be attentive to Scripture and prayer. They should have a a prayer life consistent with their uh, public life of leading. Pastors and elders, when we think about like, okay, how do we relate to the apostles in this passage? We are not apostles. I'm not an apostle. An apostle was a person who witnessed the resurrection. The way we've seen it so far is that they said, that they had to be witnesses of Jesus' ministry starting at his baptism and starting with John the Baptist. So they had walked with Jesus from the baptism at the River Jordan until Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended. They had been with him through all of that. Those are the apostles that it's talking about. But there is an indirect equivalence that I would say that pastors and elders have in that they are now spiritual leaders in local churches. And all that it's really saying is, if I want to think about like an apostolic ministry and how it, how it um, is a part of my life, it is in that I need to be attentive to Scripture and prayer. I need to be a person of prayer. I need to pay attention to what God is saying through His Word. And so do all of us, but especially it has to be true of, of biblical leaders, qualified leaders. And God uses scripture and prayer to do his work, and we might think it's got to be more complicated than that. But it's not. That's the beauty of it. It's not more complicated than that. God does his work through scripture and prayer. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God, Jesus put an emphasis in his own life of prayer. The Bible says he would get up early and go to desolate places and pray privately. Jesus prayed himself. And Jesus' disciples said, teach us how to pray. And we know that in their life there was an emphasis of prayer. And you might think, well, I don't know how to pray or I'm not a good prayer. I don't think being a good prayer is the thing. I think having a desire to come to God with your your stuff is the thing. That's what really matters. And so they prayed, and for them, it's like I've heard other people say, prayer is like oxygen. It's like we inhale to hear from God and we exhale to talk to God. And a lot of times uh, we should be like... um, hyperventilating because we exhale way more than we inhale. But we inhale, we listen to God, we slow ourselves and interrupt ourselves and listen to God. And to be a person who is experiencing this connection and relationship to God in an effective way means that we do that. We're people of prayer. Another way that they turned this crisis into uh, an opportunity was putting right people in the right places. They, they uh, took these seven dudes. When you read their names, uh, people that are theologians say the thing that stands out is that they all have Greek names. They, they were Hellenists. They, they took these men and they took all of the people that they put in leadership uh, situations were from the offended minority is the way they put it. Isn't that interesting? All of the, the men that they sent out to solve the problem of the Greek-speaking widows being neglected were Greek speakers, were Hellenists themselves, were part of the offended minority. So they chose the right people and sent them out. 
and uh, it, it caused flourishing in the church. And so the, the statement here that's amazing to me is it's, uh, when we think this is exemplary leadership, that's what you're seeing here that they practice. Look at uh, the passage there in verse 5 again. It says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. I thought, well, this is one of the biggest miracles you'll ever see in the Bible, right? Everybody was happy. That's what it says. When do you ever go to church and everybody's happy? Or when are you ever part of any kind of community and everybody's happy? That is a miracle. And so part of what happened because they behaved wisely is that it unified people. It brought people together. And it's indicative of, like we said, pulling in the same direction. We don't have to be 100% on the same page about everything, but, but get a group of people who are pulling in the same direction, who realize that there's a bigger cause in the world than their individual preferences, and that is a group of people that God can use and work through. And that's what we see with them is that their, their hearts are knit together for something bigger than themselves. So they made God's purpose bigger than their preferences, the, and then we look at how the disciples uh, themselves behave in this situation. Even though the assignment that's been given seemed, uh, we, the character of the people too, you know, they weren't lightweights. Uh, we're going to see Stephen show up in the next passage that we talk about next week. What, who is Stephen? A deacon, we would say. What else? A martyr, right? He's the first person to be martyred for his testimony, and it's lengthy. We're going to look at that. But these are not lightweights. Stephen is a, is a martyr. He gives bold witness to Christ. It costs him his life. What about Philip? Philip is an evangelist. We're, in a little bit, we'll see Philip meet the Ethiopian eunuch and have a conversation with the, the eunuch. So we think about what kind of guys were these deacons, you know? They were evangelists, martyrs, serious Christians. They were serious and God's using them. Uh, Cicero wrote, those wanting to enforce high standards must be known to live by them. And these were people that were living a high standard. But what about the, the disciples? That's the last part of that slide, is that the, their leadership wasn't stubborn or controlling. They, did, they looked at the problem, and they had humility. They, it, basically what they're saying is, we made a mistake here. We created a problem by not paying attention. It was a tacit admission of mistake-making. And when we think about our own lives, of course, that's a very uh, 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 good application for any of us to think through, like, I made a mistake. Can you say I was wrong? I'm not going to make you say it with me. But if you're going to get married, you know, it's a good idea to introduce that phrase into your vocabulary, especially you husbands, because I think we're uh, percentage-wise wrong a lot more often probably. At least let me speak from my own experience. But it, it, for them, they were willing to acknowledge, hey, we made a mistake, we were wrong. And there was a humble commitment to correction. So that's why it's, it says there it's exemplary leadership. And the passage shows us that they also supported the people that they called and released them. They lay hands on these men, as a, which signifies some important things. Uh, it may have been a benediction. It may have been a blessing. But the, this is when we see them sending these people out to serve, these are some of the notable ideas there. 
Uh, they pronounce a blessing. Maybe this is ordination. This is certainly where the idea of ordination comes from in modern Christianity. We say, is ordination a biblical practice? It's the laying on of hands, the setting aside to ministry of humans. And that's what they were doing. They laid hands on them. They prayed for them. And so they cared uh, for the vulnerable. Here's this group of people who could easily fall uh, through the cracks that's these widows. They don't have any power, right? They don't have any power, influence. A lot of times we end up uh, acknowledging and uh, correcting toward powerful people. That's not what they're doing. What they did do was correct toward the vulnerable among them. They said these people are people that we need to care for properly. And, they, and they, that's what they do. They don't let them fall through the cracks. There was a growing structure that you can see. We've talked about this idea before that, like, what is a church? A church is an organism because it's a living body, but it has organization. And so it had organization. There was a pattern that was developing that God was going to replicate. What they needed, because as the church grew, this is an important missions idea because a lot of times people are planting churches still. Um, it may come to that again, probably. Well, there is. There are church planting movements in North America now. But when people plant churches, what the Bible did for them is give them something that was simple and powerful as a pattern. Deacons, pastors, elders, just take that as an organizational pattern, as the primary part of it, and do it over and over and over again. That's what God gave them in history. So healthy church culture... We think it, it was functioning. It was doing what it was intended to do. And churches have culture. Like if you work at a business, you have a culture. It probably represents a lot of things you complain about all the time when you go to work. The culture, the way it works or doesn't work, you know. But a church has a culture too. And, and the people that are part of it are what make that culture. Our commitment, the, the way that we try to affect it toward health, toward flourishing. So they were affecting this toward flourishing. And the, the, I always think about, like, what you want. It, it was deliberate, predictable, intentional, thoughtful, helpful, useful. That was the healthy uh, culture that they were a part of. So I don't know. I'm trying to teach here, okay? I'm trying to teach us to say, like, when we think about our role and our presence and what we bring to Christ's body, and that's what your own discipleship ought to be moving toward, right or wrong. Of course I'm right. Because <laughs> that's a Bible idea. It's not a Bobby idea. We, we ought to be moving toward discipleship. If we are, we think, okay, well, this is, I want to contribute to a good culture. If I do so, it's because my own behavior among all these other people is useful, helpful, intentional, deliberate. I can be counted on. If I say I'm going to do something, nobody has to wonder. It will happen. That's the, the way they were building this community of humans following Christ together. And the last uh, truth we see here about how they took this crisis and it became for them an opportunity was that they trusted God to even greater, blessed with even greater effectiveness, which is what the passage said happened. When they paused, they took time out to say, here's a problem, complicated, needs our attention, let's wade in, 
let's make it better. God's word was amplified, it spread, and it prospered. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased dramatically. Not least, the passage says, a great many priests submitted themselves to the faith. They ha- that had to be an encouraging development. Look, think about who the priests were. These were the opponents of Christ, the ones that were consenting to his crucifixion. Now, all of a sudden, the resurrection and its power and the faithfulness and consistency of these people and their witness has caused even the most violent opposition to begin to turn to faithful discipleship and following of Jesus. And so you see this kind of continued dismantling of the old order. But that's not how the disciples would have seen it. They would have said this is a continuation of the narrative that God has been writing throughout history now for thousands of years. Their commitment to care for the most vulnerable among them didn't take a back seat to uh, the growth of the church. It complemented it. They saw it as a part of it. This crisis occurred in the context of church community. The correction was a blessing to people who needed it, and it anticipated a new direction that's in the flow of the work of God's Holy Spirit. Because the guy, the last one that's mentioned this passage uh, as one of the deacons, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, that's the movement. And it's inserted in here almost certainly as a way of helping us think that the church is moving and it's um, God is working. They had an openness and hu- uh, humility and willingness to change and grow. Well, if we're, if we're ever going to have the kind of healthy attitude that God can bless us because we have that sort of humility among ourselves and willingness to change and grow. There used to be a, jo- a joke that said, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Have you ever heard that joke? Like you can't change the light bulb because somebody's grandmother gave that light bulb and, you know, stuff like that. It was just a way of saying sometimes we get so stuck in tradition that we we can't possibly adjust and change in healthy ways. That's from my old Baptist background. But God was giving growth to the people who led by ser- uh, by serving through the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit and given evidence of it, full of wisdom behaving with maturity, reputable, full of faith. What's another way of saying that? Faithful. They were faithful. Often what feels like crisis and disruption is really just God introducing us with an opportunity to pause and regroup and ask critical questions about uh, how to follow along a new and helpful path. God is up to something. And he's interested in uh, us growing and flourishing, not being stuck or stalled. So our commitment to his movement in this world requires thoughtfulness, initiative, awareness, deliberate behavior, adjustment, willingness. And we think about people. There, Nobody is a pawn for anybody else's agenda. Nobody. Each of us is created by God, and all of us are important to his purposes in, in the world. Everybody. That's good news. All of us are part of what God's doing if we know him. And the elderly aren't throwaway people. No church can prosper as God intends without attending to the dignity of its weakest and most vulnerable members. That's what this passage shows us also. We're going to have a time of prayer followed by a song to close our service. This is always also an opportunity for 
response. It may be as you listen, you hear these ideas, resurrection, forgiveness of sins. And that's always the gospel. The gospel is always present in what we're uh, talking through, the good news that Christ came here to give us life and hope. And so you may need to respond to Jesus in just that way and follow him in baptism. Baptism is uh, not how our sins are forgiven, but it is a, a symbol of the fact that we're following the one who forgives sins. And it's a, a portrayal of the death of you to your old self and the life of you in a brand new way. And so it may be as you listen, you're thinking through that. I need to follow Jesus as a baptized believer, as a, as a witness to him, or whatever the need may be as you've listened a way that God is encouraging you to adjust and correct your life. Would you stand with me as we sing? I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have opportunity to respond. God, we're so grateful to you for your love for us, God, the kindness that uh, birthed a movement in the world, the church. And we see that they are just like us. They face complications and difficulty. And yet in all these crises, each time what we see is they adjusted their life and obeyed. And because of that, you caused your movement to continue to bless the lives of humans. And you touched the vulnerable, God. You reached out to the broken and the needy. And you gave us forgiveness and hope and community and a family that we belong to. And so we thank you for that. And God, we pray that you'll bless this aspect of our worship as we commit our hearts more deeply to you. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.